you're a guest, uh, my name is Pastor Jonathan. Um, if you do not have a Bible uh, with you this morning, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will give you one. And if you don't have your own Bible, please take that as our gift to you and read it. Um, right now we're in a series on Christian disciplines and the reason for this series is found in Luke 6.40 where Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. If you call yourself a Christian, we desire to be like Christ in word and thought and deed. And so our goal in this series and really in every sermon should be to see where Jesus stepped, find his footprints, and then we step in those same footsteps. Um, all of this for the ultimate goal of being more like Christ. And the specific discipline that I'm going to talk about today is fasting. So... I'm excited that, that at least one person's excited. The rest of you, uh, I know your eyes are potentially glazing over because many people don't think that this practice has much relevance to us today, but I would urge you to bear with me for just a little while and see if your view of fasting uh, matches Scripture's view of fasting or our Lord's view of fasting. Um, because the bottom line is fasting is talked about more in Scripture than baptism. And it's something our Lord did and taught on. So if we claim to follow Christ, then when our master speaks on a topic, we must listen or else proclaim by our conduct that he is not our master. So our main passage today is Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And as you're turning, I'll describe broadly where we're going to go today. Our desire is not just to accumulate facts. Or, or doctrinal statements or truths, but to imitate Christ. So this sermon will be very practical. Uh, so we're going to attempt to answer three questions. What is fasting? Why should we fast? And how do we fast? Our main passage, as I've said, Matthew 9, 14 through 17, will be on the screen. Um, but as I attempt to flesh out this discipline, we're going to address many different passages. And the reason for these many passages is anytime someone's preaching, you should not take them on faith, myself included. Accept the words of a person because uh, they are found in Scripture, not because they're standing next to a podium. We are to take every thought captive and compare it to the Word of God. So, so my goal in all these passages is that you wouldn't take my words on faith, but if what I say does not fit with Scripture, all of Scripture, you ignore me and you believe Scripture, not me. Um, so, those will be on the screen, but you can remain in Matthew 9 for, for, have your Bibles open to Matthew 9, but all the other verses will be on the screen, so if that's helpful. So, let's read Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on a garment, an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." I emphasized something. I dwelled on a, a phrase there. What was it? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The simple principle I want us to hear at the outset 
is our master expected us to fast when he left. I'm going to get into many other reasons why we should fast, but the most important reason is if you call yourself a servant of Christ, it's this, your master expected you to fast. We will touch more on that and other reasons, but, but first let's ask, what is fasting? Let's look again to verse 14. It'll point us in the right direction. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Which, what is the disciple of John referring to here? The Pharisees, if you don't know, were self-proclaimed experts in the Mosaic law. They claimed to be the most righteous people because of their strict adherence to it. So this question the disciple of John is asking assumes something. It's saying, if the Pharisees are doing something, then that must surely be found as a command in Scripture. Yes? No. Nowhere in the Mosaic law is a person commanded to fast twice a week. So what happened? If we comb through the Mosaic law, we see only one place where it commands. Hear what I'm saying. The only command that was given in the law that the people of Israel understood as a command uh, by God to fast was as part of the annual day of atonement. And we see this command in Leviticus 16:29 through 31. It'll be on the screen and it reads, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath day of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Who sees the word fast? Good. It's not there. You're correct. What you see is afflict yourselves. The original Hebrew word used here could be defined as be bowed down low, afflict yourself, or be humbled. But in this context, the word was understood by generations of God's people as to include fasting. Therefore, it became part of the annual observance of the Day of Atonement that Jews fasted in obedience to the command, afflict yourselves or be humbled. So the people of Israel were on this day to afflict themselves, humble themselves, be bowed down as part of considering God, his provision and his grace. And I wanted to point out this passage for two reasons. One, to see how easy it is for those who seek to be righteous by their own work to add to Scripture. This command was for an annual fast, and yet by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees had by their tradition twisted this and other commands and passages into requirement that one must fast twice a week in order to be righteous. The lesson from this first point is that we must always come back to Scripture for our questions, how to live, not tradition or culture. The second reason is this phrase helps us answer the question, what is fasting? Afflict simply means to weaken yourself. God's people here were to purposefully weaken themselves, purposefully humble themselves in order to seek and honor God. So all that being said, I'll give you a definition for fasting. Temporary weakening or afflicting yourselves by, yourself by abstaining from something in order to minimize your focus, small your focus, on yourself or your own strength for a purpose that magnifies or honors God, makes him big and the thing, other things small or yourself small. Temporary weakening or afflicting yourself by abstaining from something, usually food, in order to minimize focus on yourself or your own strength 
for a purpose that magnifies and honors God. Okay, so that's the what. Let's look at the why. Our, message, our, our main passage notes that our master expected us to fast, but it also notes that in other passages that we should not fast for reasons, specifically reasons like the Pharisee. So there are God-honoring ways to fast and God-dishonoring ways to fast. So let's attempt to answer the why. Why, are the, why should we fast the God-honoring ways? And besides our master's expectation that we should fast and the fact that our master himself fasted, what are God-honoring reasons to fast? And, and from Scripture, I see three primary reasons. These are not exhaustive, but, but three primary reasons. The first is to express repentance for personal or corporate sin. And I think this is the most common example we see in Scripture. Um, let's look at Jonah uh, briefly. When Jonah preached to the city of Nineveh and told them that they would be destroyed unless they turned from their sin... This was the response of their king and their people, and it's found in Jonah 3, 5 through 10. <clears throat> and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and flee from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and this is the good news, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. So what was our definition? Temporary weakening or afflicting yourself by abstaining from something in order to minimize. Focus on yourself or your own strength for a purpose that magnifies and honors God. So here, what do we see? We see a king, a king of a great city, lay aside his power, his wealth, his comfort, his strength, and lead his people to turn to God to repent of their sin, and it included his sin, to recognize that God is sovereign, and he, though he is a king of a great city, is not. In pleading with God for mercy, he and his people were proclaiming that God is the judge of all. God is the one who has the right to pronounce justly uh, judgment upon them for their sin, and that they, in a way, are throwing themselves at the mercy of the court and asking for grace. I want to point out the humility of the king as he's doing this. There was not presumption or a feeling of control over God. Notice he says, let everyone turn from his evil. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And this is the most common example of fasting I've found in Scripture. Purposeful affliction, purposeful laying aside of good things in order to focus on God and pleading with God for mercy when that, a particular nation or people had turned from God had exalted sin. Um, we see it frequently. It's all over the book of Kings. But in each instance, there is godly, profound sorrow over the sin of the people and the fact that it had caused division between God and his people. And before moving on to the second reason, I want to make one clarifying comment uh, in this reason. Note that the fasting was not done in order to earn forgiveness, but rather to express genuine mourning over sin because it offends God 
and it's an extreme desire to turn from it in order to that the fellowship with God could be restored. That is godly sorrow, and that honors God. But there's a type of worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is sorrow that merely that is sad merely at the consequences of our sin or that we got caught. A person who's experiencing worldly sorrow might be tempted to fast in order to control God or gain control over God, thinking, if I just do this, I'll unlock the right combination to regain what I have lost. I will force God, force God, to look upon me with the favor and declare me righteous. That's the heart of a Pharisee, and I want to guard you against that. Using works and self-effort to control God You've created your own standard in that moment and saying, God must honor this. I'm well-intentioned. He must see this as righteous. That's not how the kingdom of heaven works. You should not think there is any restoration or forgiveness coming if you just regret that your sinful actions have consequences. That's sorrow motivated by pride and selfishness, not humility. By contrast, the first step towards coming to Christ is in humbly recognizing your own sin and that you have no claim over God or his mercy. God owes nothing towards you except wrath. And so you have no standing to ask for anything except mercy, unconditioned mercy. That's the type of humble plea in view here that which comes from a sorrow that recognizes it has no claim to God's grace, but rather it says, I know I deserve only wrath from you, but please, please, of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Does that make sense? Cool. Okay. Second reason. The second God-honoring reason that we see in Scripture to accompany, is to accompany a plea and seek God's particular grace or favor in a matter. Uh, we see this in the case of Queen Esther. Uh, Esther 6, 15 through 16 will be on the screen. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So let me give you some context. Queen Esther's people were under threat and she was planning to go see the king to beg for his protection for her people. The problem was that if anyone came between, before the king without him first summoning them, they could have been put to death. And so Esther here is fasting as an accompaniment to her plea. Her plea to God for his mercy as she entered the king's presence without his summons, and also a plea for God's mercy as she begged for the lives of her people to be spared so in this instance, a person is by their affliction through fasting saying, God, you are sovereign and I am not. The fast is done to state in a very real way that I'm not going to rest in my own strength in this needful time, but I will humble myself before God because only he can do this. And I am asking my God and master to please have mercy on his servant and help me because I can't do this on my own, out of my own strength, my own intellect, my own force of will, whatever. Notice again, there is no presumption. There is only humility in asking for mercy. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. The reason I emphasize this again is that we, when we fast, we're humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, I'm not going to rely on my strength. I'm relying wholly on your strength. Please deliver me from this. Please help me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The last reason I see in Scripture why we are to fast is simply to proclaim that God is our ultimate source of strength and nothing else. And I think this is the type of fasting that we see Jesus himself engage in. Uh, let's look at Matthew 4, 2 through 4, which will also be on the screen. <clears throat> and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was hungry, but through fasting he showed that food was not the source of his strength and life, but the word of God. It is appropriate for us to fast in this way, this third reason, in order to test or reveal, or in Jesus' case, proclaim what it is we are trusting in. Am I trusting in something other than God for my daily peace, for my daily strength, for my daily source of comfort? And personally, I found this to be the most common reason for me because when I think perhaps there might be something that is having too much sway over my life in this way, I begin to wonder if perhaps I'm leaning too heavily on physical comfort to get through the day or if, if my consumption of a particular form of entertainment has grown too large. A good way to determine that is to fast. Uh, I think we should examine ourselves in this way, for Scripture says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13. If you think there is something in your life that might be taking the place of God, then it might be a good thing to fast from that thing in order to proclaim that Christ is your source of strength and joy, not that thing. Self-control, self-discipline, and denying the desires of the flesh are to be daily parts of the Christian's normal, routine life. For Scripture says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. See what I said? Regular. Daily and follow me. And again, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Controlling your appetites, not elevating good things to God things, practicing self-discipline, these are meant to be daily activities of the normal Christian, not hidden practices of the super-spiritual. But we also see in Scripture some ways fasting is done wrong. So would you please read with me in Luke 18, 10 through 14, which also will be on the screen. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like this other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Apparently, this man-made practice of fasting twice a week had become so widespread 
that Jesus knew that if he used this illustration, the crowd would know exactly what he was getting at. What does Jesus say at the end? He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The first mindset you should be on guard against as you fast is this. Your fasting does not make you righteous before God. Faith alone in the grace of God alone, as showed through the finished work of Christ alone, saves you. Therefore, if you are hearing me today talk about fasting and you think, I would like to do that, to get right standing before God, to clean myself up. Hear me, you're making the same mistake as the Pharisee. You're attempting to create your own man-made law and saying that by that law, God must accept me. Scripture destroys this thought. For as we see in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And again in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Fasting and any other practice or discipline will not make you more accepted in the eyes of God. We should not fast if we think that somehow it will make us more pleasing in the sight of God than we already are in Christ if you believe. If you are in Christ, in God's eyes, you are righteous, period. But you never added the slightest thread to that robe of Christ's righteousness that covers you. Not on the day you were born again, not now, and at no point in the future did you add a thread to that robe. If you are in Christ, then when God the Father looks at you, he only sees the purity and righteous beauty of his Son, And that was true on the day you were born again. And it will be true the day he calls you home in glory. And if you are not in Christ, then scripture says the wrath of God abides on you. Not just at the end of the age, but right now. That's John 3.36. Present tense abides. His wrath hangs over you like an executioner's axe waiting to descend. And no amount of fasting, praying, tithing, serving, or anything else that you would do in your power will save you, but only that you believe and follow the Son. So that's the first why not. Why do we not fast? We don't fast in order to be seen more favorable in the sight of God. And the second fast why not is similar. Let's look at Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus' point in this passage is that some will fast purely for the approval of men. It's shocking, I know. They will create their own man-made standard and hold to it, not out of a desire to please God, but out of a desire to be thought well of by their community, to be thought more holy than those around them. When we do things simply because our tradition or culture says, that, says to, what are you really after? Isn't it the approval of man? Isn't it that you might be thought well of by those in the culture or tradition or the elite? Isn't it really that their approval that you're seeking not to please God? If that's what you are, why you are fasting, then please stop, repent, look to Scripture, 
learn God's view of fasting, we take our views, uh, our cues from Scripture, and then we desire to please God, uh, not men or the culture. As we finish on talking about why uh, should we fast, I want to address one final thing. At the beginning of the sermon, I noted that our Lord and Master expected us to fast, and we see this point again repeated in the passage we just read, where he says, uh, when you fast, Matthew 6, 16 through 18, when you fast, he says it twice. So the point I want to reemphasize on the why should we fast is because our Lord and Master expects us to. And if we proclaim to be followers of Christ and slaves of Christ, then when our Master expects us to do something, we will do it. But at this point, someone might say, Jonathan, you've just admitted that nowhere in Scripture does it command, a binding command, we aren't under the Mosaic Law anymore. Um, we have a greater atonement. That's why we don't celebrate the old day of atonement. But Jonathan, you've just said Scripture nowhere commands us to fast. So, so if I'm doing it just because Jesus expects me to, doesn't that make it lose all meaning? So let's check that reasoning. Husbands, does Scripture command you to buy flowers for your wife? No, it doesn't. Does your wife still expect on occasion for you to buy her flowers? Yeah, yeah. Will you still be married if you do not buy your wife flowers? Yes. Is it therefore good reason, good reasoning for you to not buy your wife flowers because scripture doesn't command it and you'll, you'll still be married if you don't? That's, that's not great reasoning, right? So it's the same thing. Just because something is expected of us, that's not a reason not to do it. <clears throat> okay, so we've answered the, the what is fasting, why should we fast, and let's conclude this portion with the how. How are we to fast? Usually the first question which is asked is, what do I fast from? Does fasting need food only? Obviously the vast majority of verses which contemplate fasting indicate that it is fasting from food. The reason I think that is the case in the, is in the day of ancient Israel, the quickest way to afflict yourself or weaken yourself or lessen your strength was simply to stop eating. Food was not as plentiful. People likely didn't have three large meals a day like we do. Many might only eat once a day, if at all. So if you gave up a meal, it truly would impact you. So I think that was a much larger and obvious point for doing it back then. But I do think fasting from food is a good idea today, especially if you're new to fasting, primarily because to some extent it will cause you to feel weak if you fast in this way. It will cause you discomfort and possibly even pain. Thus, you will accomplish the affliction part of fasting, the being bowed low part. But I think that God-honoring fasting can include other things as well for two reasons. First, <clears throat> because the passage relating to the Day of Atonement said, afflict yourself. The goal then should be, can I remove something other than food which will humble me or bow me low? And I think for most of us, the answer is probably yes. Second, some people don't care about food that much. My mother regularly forgets to eat. I don't think fasting from food would be that impactful for her. Third, because some people for health reasons might simply need to eat for a medical condition. Um, and then fourth, because we do see in scripture examples of fasting other than just going without food. In Daniel 10, two through uh, three, we see Daniel lay aside certain delicacies and luxuries that were due to him by right of his station. Paul likewise in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says that married couples might agree to fast from sex for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
note mutual agreement, but my point being that other things are, are legitimate things to fast from. All that being said, if you've never fasted, I think that fasting from food is a good place to start. But if you desire to fast from something else, let me offer some just three practical thoughts in choosing what that thing might be. It should be something that will humble you and, and afflict you by giving it up. Therefore, it would likely be something that is a source of strength, pleasure, or comfort in a normal day-to-day -day context. Running does not give me joy or comfort or pleasure, if you can't tell. Therefore, I should not attempt to fast from running. It would in no way afflict me. It should, second, it should be something that is itself not sinful. If you stop doing something that is sinful, that's not a fast. That's repentance. And it should be a normal part of your Christian life. If you say, I will fast from sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend or looking at porn, that's not a fast. That's plain Jane repentance. And I encourage it, but it's not fasting. It should be for a spiritual purpose, point three. Don't give up food just because your real motivation is to lose weight or again, you, you want the approval of man, so, so check your reasoning. I don't want to belabor this point, but I'll say that in the past, food has been probably the most effective thing for me to fast from, but also it's been helpful to fast from other things like entertainment, forms of social media, or for me, the news. Um, but for many, fasting from food is a good place to start, and it makes the most sense because it's something we must all do, and it's a common source of strength and comfort so, for, so, for so many of us, excuse me. Okay, next steps. You've decided what you're going to fast from. What next? Next, I would say make a plan. <clears throat> if it's social media or entertainment, pick a number of days that you're going to fast. If it's food, then pick specific time periods and start small would be my encouragement. Just skip lunch to start. Or if you want to try something longer, go from lunch one day to lunch the next. Stay hydrated. Maybe drink a juice in lieu of the meal. But the bottom line is we are so blessed, brothers and sisters, and we have so pampered our bodies that we can truly do without food for a very long time, but not water. So. But make a plan. Be intentional and thoughtful as you plan for your fast and as you fast. So, so okay, what do we do while we're in the midst of our, our fast? Fix in your mind what, it is, what is your point. Um, what will you do while you're fasting? Um, what will you do when the hunger pains come? Let's again look at Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The main instruction from this passage seems to indicate that it should not be obvious to others that you're fasting. Do you see that? It should not be obvious. Your goal is not the approval of men, but to humble yourself before God. Therefore, do not draw attention to your fast. Similarly, <clears throat> Recognize that your fasting is not an excuse for you to be rude or frustrated or impatient with your spouse or others. As we saw from Jesus, you don't get to mope and say, woe is me. The point is to turn your eyes to God, not yourself. 
In order to avoid being frustrated, I think it's helpful also to plan what your response will be when the pain or discomfort of the fast arises. Fix in your mind what you're doing and why you're doing it. The goal is not just to deprive yourself for the sake of depriving yourself, but to, to de-emphasize a particular thing in order to emphasize Christ or your pursuit of him. To de-emphasize things that you might be tempted to call your source of strength and comfort so that you can emphasize God as your ultimate source of comfort and strength. Have a plan for what affirmative action you will take to love and pursue Christ more in the time that you were normally eating. In scripture, we see that that's what people usually do, that what people usually do with that time they normally would have spent eating as they're spending it in prayer, meditation, and confession. All these are good places to start. Whatever focuses your mind's attention and your heart affections, your heart's affection on Jesus. So whenever you feel that pain of hunger or longing for Instagram, use that. That's the entire point of fasting. We become so inoculated by routine that sometimes it takes causing intentional affliction to ourselves through fasting to reorient our minds and hearts once again to God. And fasting sharpens our focus because whatever you are doing, that needle of hunger or longing will inject itself into any thought or activity and shout, pay attention to me. And the point of hunger or of fasting is in that moment when your attention or focus has been interrupted by the hunger pain is to now use that space to focus on God, to worship God, to confess sin, to rely on God. So let's again think about what this might look practically, what this might look like practically. <clears throat> okay, you're midway through your fast and you have a headache and you're mad. <clears throat> your stomach growls in pain Unless you have a purpose in mind at this point, you will just mope and think, how sad is my state? But if you have set in your mind the purpose of your fast, then this is how the thought process should go. You think, I'm hungry. Next, you can say, oh yeah, well, I'm fasting. That makes sense. Next, you say, why am I fasting? Oh yes, because I wanted to beg for God's help with this difficult trial I'm going through. Next, you pray, God, please help me. I admit that my own strength, intellect, endurance is insufficient to address this trial that I'm going through, but you are sovereign, you are good, you work all things together for good for those who you have called, and I therefore trust that whatever happens will ultimately be for my good, but God, please have mercy, and if possible, let this be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, O God, amen. This is one of the great beauties of fasting is that you have a built-in reminder that you can't ignore to keep your mind's attention and your heart affect, heart's affection on God. Because in 10 minutes, you will feel a hunger pain again. So you do all that again. And in this way, you're able to maintain focus on God and pleading with him in a way that you couldn't have otherwise. Okay. I think we've hit every question. Why should we fast? What is it? What are bad reasons to fast? What practical steps can I take to incorporate fasting? So let me wrap up our time with this. This series is on disciplines, normal, regular disciplines of the Christian life. The goal of it is that if you claim to be a disciple of Christ, then you will do the things Jesus did. <coughs> we do them. 
We don't just talk about them. We don't just learn theory or collect facts. But to the best of our ability, as I've said, we try to see where Jesus stepped and we walk in his footprints. We wouldn't argue that they are normal unless we believed scripture commands regular practice of each. And my fear is that some of you might say, this is great. I've accumulated many new fascinating facts about fasting. A lot of great new information. But you don't feel any need to incorporate fasting despite the fact that your Lord expected it to be a part of your normal day-to-day life. The reason that I fear that is that that means you feel no need or applicability of this to your life. And so if that's you, if you feel no need to employ this particular practice of our Lord, then I want to spend the last few minutes speaking to you in particular. Have you considered why you feel no urgency? Is it because you feel there is no sense of urgency in the world today, perhaps? No reason to urgently and fervently and sincerely beg God for his grace and intervention in our world. And if not, then I love you, but would you please wake up? The apologist Francis Schaeffer once said that the church in America seems like it is under the sway of a demonic lullaby. The verses of that lullaby are personal peace, comfort. Satan is able to keep the American church asleep simply by saying, don't worry, be at peace. Look, here's something to entertain you. Be numb for just a little bit. And while we're sucking at the pacifier of comfort and personal peace and entertainment, he is causing terrible evil. As we've seen the majority of times we see fasting done in Scripture, it's because God's judgment was upon the land because of the evil that God's people had permitted to take root. So a faithful few would cry out in prayer and fasting for repentance, for brokenness over sin, that Israel would turn back to God and God would remove his judgment and again bless the land. But how did Israel get to that place to begin with? You see, in each of these cases, what had happened was God's chosen people would become complacent. They would tolerate sin and foreign gods, and then that tolerance eventually led to acceptance and then to celebration, where God's own people were worshiping these foreign gods, engaging in false worship, sacrificing children to Molech. Israel's kings were offering sacrifices to Baal. So God visited judgment upon his own people. And if you study the Old Testament, one of the most frequent forms of judgment was to give Israel Weak leaders, evil leaders, leaders that would spread injustice instead of justice. Leaders who called evil good and good evil. Leaders who would ignore criminals and who would prosecute the innocent. Leaders who would celebrate child sacrifice and indeed sacrifice their own children on the altar of false gods. Does any of that sound familiar? Christian, look around you. Child sacrifice? Check. Our nation has killed 63 million babies since Roe. The most bloodthirsty high priest of Molech could not in his wildest dreams imagine such a slaughter of innocent children. Evil rulers, check. Our nation in many instances has stopped prosecuting criminals and instead prosecutes the innocent. Many of our leaders celebrate the irreversible mutilation of children in the name of sexual liberation and revolution. Many of our leaders are celebrating that there is pornography 
in our children's libraries and schools, while at the same time some schools are restricting access to the Bible, saying it's obscene or evil. You don't think we need to beg God for repentance? For those of you who think this won't impact you, I'll share two final thoughts on this point. I'm a lay elder at the well, which means I have an eight to five job during the week. Back in May, I received something from a company we do business with that I'd never seen before. It was a code of conduct for their approved business partners. You see, we'd previously performed a very large service for this other company and they owed us a large amount of money for it and so we sent them an invoice. This company said, after the work was done, of course we'll pay you, just sign this code of conduct first. And in section one, at the very beginning, it required that you hold a view of the sexual revolution that scripture would call sinful. They were saying, that if we didn't hold the right opinions of the sexual revolution, they would not pay us what they acknowledged that they owed. And I think you will see this only more and more. The world will say, if you dare call sinful, what scripture says is sinful, you may not participate in civilized society and I will even go back on my word and not pay you when you are owed things. We didn't sign it. And eventually they did finally pay us. But do you see how subtle This is and how hard it will be for many to resist. We did not suffer this time, time, but I think many will. Last month in a community college here in San Antonio, a biology professor who has taught for 20 years that sex is determined by X and Y chromosomes was fired. He taught the exact same thing for 20 years, but this year something was different. When he said that exact same thing, he was fired for hate speech, for preaching religious content. I didn't know that was religious content. But what changed? The cultural revolution, the sexual revolution. But do, and do you see how that drift happens, that cultural drift happens? What was once a given obvious truth must give way for the cultural revolution. Truth must bend the knee. The revolution asks for acceptance until it has sufficient power. Then it says, if you disagree with me, I will destroy you. If it, if it says, if you call sinful what scripture calls sinful, I will destroy you. We saw the drifts of that, the results of that drift in Israel shown in the pages of scripture and it is happening in every nation on earth today where God's people just were, were inoculated by comfort and numbing And you multiply that drift over 50, 60, 70 years, you get to where we are today. But here's the good news. What would happen if we fasted and prayed today for repentance? What if we beg God for repentance in this nation, this state, and this city, and we don't stop until he gives it? What would happen 50, 60, 70 years from now? Finally, I cannot ask you to consider the sin of the nation or the city without telling you first to consider your own sin and for me to consider my own sin. Scripture says that before we consider the sins of others, we must first consider our own sin first. Specifically, Scripture says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? We must first, first, Remove the log so that we can clearly see to remove the speck in our brother's eye. So before you beg God for repentance for those people, 
the people who voted differently from me or who think differently from me. Beg him to give you godly sorrow over your own sin. And that applies especially if you're a Christian because we still sin. Brothers and sisters, our first concern is always for our own sin before we look at the sin of others. Does that mean we don't call out others' sin or the world's sin until we're sinless? No. It says we're to be serious about the sin around us, but we are to be more serious about our own sin. So as we close, finally, I'm sure you've said that, I'm urging you to pray and fast for repentance regarding your own sin. And if you don't think that's necessary, it is probably because you have a deficient view of your own sin. So let me tell you about your own sin and my own sin. If you think I'm not that bad, or I'm certainly not as bad as those who practice modern day child sacrifice or mutilation, then you probably don't understand the extent of your sin. And therefore you don't fully understand or appreciate your need for God and your continuing need for the hope of the gospel. Here's the truth. The bottom line is that apart from the saving work of Christ, just what you've done in the last 10 minutes would justify God putting you to death. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, your sin in just the last 10 minutes would have been enough to condemn you to hell for eternity. And if you don't believe me, answer me this. Jesus said, In the last 10 minutes, did you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind? No, none of us did. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. That's the greatest commandment even above don't offer your children to Moloch and don't murder. We have just the barest glimpse of the distance between us and our fallen state apart from Christ and a holy, holy, holy God. And until you recognize the depth of that gulf, you don't fully appreciate the extent of the work that Jesus did to close that gap for those who believe. Beloved, your sin was so ugly, so serious, so offensive to his holiness that God did not even spare his own son when Jesus took your sin upon his shoulders. God saw your sin and my sin on Jesus and killed Jesus for it. He killed Jesus when he should have killed you and he should have killed me. Wages of sin is death, scripture says you were owed that. That was coming your way. A holy bullet was headed for your head and for those who believe and follow Jesus, Jesus stepped in the way of that. For some scandalous grace-laden reason known only to God, Jesus said, kill me instead and God the Father did it. When Jesus took your sin and my sin upon God, upon himself, God the Father butchered him. That's how seriously God views your sin. That's how seriously God views my sin. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've not bent the knee to Jesus, then let me be very clear, he has not stepped in front of that bullet for you. He has not. If you would say today that Jesus is not your master, then you should ignore everything I've said about fasting up to this point and just hear this. Jesus has not stepped into, the, into that bullet for you. And you should beg God right now for his mercy and forgiveness to save you. For scripture says in John 3:36 that unless you are in Christ, unless you are in Christ, God's wrath abides upon you. That word abides means present tense right now. So repent today. Follow Jesus today.
But if today do you claim to know and follow Jesus, then you need to remember what it is that God saved you from and what it cost him to do so. So my final word to you and myself would be this, get on your knees and beg God today. Beg God through prayer and fasting for his mercy, a mercy of repentance, a mercy that lets us see and hate our sin with the same hatred that God hates our sin, a mercy that makes us sorrowful over our sin as God is when he sees our sin. Beg God through prayer and fasting for holiness without which we will not see God, for a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Beg God that it would begin with you and me and that it would continue in our families and city and nation. Humble yourself before God, afflict yourself in fasting, and then approach him in prayer. And let's begin right now. Would you pray with me?